Hey guys, welcome back. Let's talk about your psychology. What is going on with you? I know why you're here. Same reason why I'm here to, yeah, learn about our psychology, of course, but why do we want to learn about our psychology? Because at some point we both, both of us faced off with the irrational, I guess you could say. We came face to face. We had a face off. We watched the movie Face Off and questioned our existence. That may be part of it too. But no, we, we came face to face with the irrational. We, we wanted to make a decision and we simply could not make that decision. Or we wanted to stop making a decision and we couldn't stop making that decision. What's going on? We know what to do. Why can we not do it? Well, because until now, nobody's really filled in the gaps. I mean, there's been some uh, pretty good attempts, Young most notably, but nobody's really filled in the gap between what to do and how to do it. These are two different questions. Everybody knows what to do. Go on the internet, go on Twitter, go on any self-help bro, lecture bro advice, mindset guy. They all know exactly what to do, but how do you do it? That's the question. How do we process our emotional issues so we can get to the point where what we want to do is what we naturally do? It's what we end up doing. Yeah, we need to process emotions to get there. Because we don't have decisions, we don't have actions without emotions. So if there's a problem with the actions that we want to take, we, it's an emotional issue. So let's learn how to manage emotions. Uh, this week we're going to learn how to manage our, our, our emotions by uh, criticizing a book that I read this past week. I was out of town visiting in-laws and uh, I, I read this book, um, How to Change, by Katie Milkman. And came out recently. She is a PhD. I don't know if she's technically a psychologist. I don't know if she would call herself that, but she's a behavioral scientist, a cognitive scientist, and she works at the business school, uh, Warren School of Business. And this is her uh, treatise, I guess you could say, on how to change. You know, something that that uh, caught my eye about this book is I saw a tweet about it, and I'm like, oh, this looks stupid. But the subtitle was, or is how to go from who you are to who you want to be, or the bridge from who you are to who you want to be. And I'm thinking, man, that's the tagline I use. <laughs> she's using my line. Maybe she's going to talk about something that I have yet to hear of. You know, this is what you do when you go around and tell people you're the greatest therapist in the history of the world is, uh, I mean, you know, the bad part of that is, is you look like a pompous buffoon. But the good part of that is you think, whoa, if I tell everybody that I'm the greatest therapist in the history of the world and history of whoever have ever lived, then, uh, geez, I really better uh, notice. I really better be aware of things that I may not be aware of. You know, you go around and make these big claims. You got to read a lot. It's a great uh, impetus to read a lot. If you just tell people, yeah, I'm an okay therapist. I don't, kind of don't really know what I'm talking about. Then a new book comes out. They use a similar tagline that you use, and you don't really need to, to read it because, well, never really made some huge claim in the first place. So this is How to Change by Katie Milkman. And, you know, I it, it's like the SJW critical race thing on college campuses. Whenever somebody asks me about it, they're like, is it really as bad as the media portrays it or as part of the media portrays it? I say no. It's not as bad. <laughs> it's worse. It's actually worse. Not explicitly worse, but implicitly worse. And these are the beliefs you simply need to have in order to get along 
in academia. In order for people not to think you're Hitler, you cannot deviate from this path. It's never spoken, but try to deviate from the path, even slightly, and just look at the reaction you get. It is not tolerated. You don't get kicked out necessarily, although I did. <laughs> you could get kicked out. You don't necessarily get kicked out, but it's just heavily implied. Hey, to be a part of this culture here and a big part about uh, you know, getting along in graduate school is you need to fit in in this culture. And the big part of fitting in in this culture is like, you just need to have these beliefs. You know, when we talk about systemic racism, I'm not saying there isn't racism and I'm not saying some of that racism may be built into the system, but to, uh, to, to play it up to the extent that we do in academia, to even deviate that from a second is, is sacrilege. Um, yeah, so that's what I say about that. Um, you know, I think it's also similar. I talk about the, the homeless people up in San Francisco. People ask, oh, is it really as bad as, as the media portrays it? And I would say, again, it's probably worse. It's probably worse than you would expect. Of course, you do the math where you think, okay, the media is portraying it this way. They're showing this tent city. It's not all that bad. So you do the math where you think, I know it's not this bad. But then you go to the city and you're like, well, I knew it wasn't as bad as that one photo they had of, of tent city on, you know, whatever news site I visit or Twitter. But I didn't expect it to be this bad where a third of the city, in a sense, smells like tinkle. Um, and I think that's... You know, similar to, you know, I, I come on here every week or not every week now. Um, I, we'll go back to every week at some point, but just right now, there's other things I'm working on. So I'm going to do this podcast whenever I can. Again, I'm going to answer your questions too in the, my Q&A videos. If you have a question for me, animus at animusempire.com. We still have a couple more to get to, but I will probably get to it at some point. Maybe, probably, possibly. And so I come on here every week every other week, every third week maybe. And I talk about how terrible the, the thought is, how, how terrible the, the philosophical infrastructure of therapy, of the psychology industry, the hegemony as we call it. Is CBT really as bad as you, as you say it is? Um, when you have a, 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 a thought that you want to change, to, does the therapist really say to simply change the thought? If, if you want to incorporate a bad habit, is this, or incorporate a good habit, if you want to change a bad habit, incorporate a good habit, we're going to get to it today and how to change by Katie Milkman. Do therapists really simply say, well, think of a, a new habit. Uh, oh, you, you're waking up too late? Well, just wake up early. Set an alarm, silly. Is it really that bad? And similarly, like the critical race thing in academia, like the tinkle smell in San Francisco, it's probably worse. In this book, I saw it on Twitter last week. You know, I was going to be out of town just kind of relaxing, a nice, easy book to get through. I thought this would be a good book for me to read this weekend, and I did. And in reading this book, yeah, I, I do not play up the cognitive hegemony how terrible it is I do not play it up enough perhaps seems like I do but this book is an indication and that I don't I mean this book is represents the, the cream of the crop the, the best research on cognitive science and behavioral science and it's it, amazing how it uh, it falls short 
it falls short explicitly. Implicitly, she does let on, Katie Milkman, the author, does let on to the ultimate solution here. We will get to it. Uh, but explicitly, it is absolutely amazing how there's just no comprehensive thought about how to really change. So we're going to go through this book, just some of the points that she makes. Maybe not all of them. I mean, I, I wrote out notes here, but maybe we won't get through all of them. But I just want to give you an idea of where most therapists are coming from. Now, she's not a therapist, but this is how a lot of therapists think. This is very indicative of what is going on in the field right now. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, people think that the big problem is the critical race thing in uh, especially academia psychology. And, and I think that is just a reaction. That is simply a compensation. That kind of, quote, irrationality is a compensation for the heavy-handedness of this supposed rationality of kind of behavioral therapy, uh, behavioral science, behaviorism. I mean, she even cites Skinner here, which is incredible. But we'll get to it. So there's seven ways to change. Seven ways, according to this book, to change. But by the way, isn't it strange that her name's Katie? I mean, that's that's a name from somebody in my generation, and you know they're they're out writing the the seminal books on. You know they're writing the books. They are the leaders in the field now. Somebody named Katie. Like what? That, that doesn't seem funny. Like no, I I would make fun of girls named Katie in high school. Now you're writing books. Okay, anyway. Um, so. There are seven things. The, the, the seven things you need to do to change yourself. The first one is to create a fresh start. Now she is citing science that says, or citing research that says, look, when you feel like you're making a fresh start, if things aren't going your way, and there's going to be some truth of this too. This isn't all criticism, and I don't want to seem like this is criticizing Katie Milkman. I, I think she is a representation of something in the field. I, I'm sure, uh, Katie, I'm, I'm sure you're a nice lady. Uh, nothing against you, but you are quite frankly wrong in this book, wrong in much of what you say. There is some truth to it. We will get to it. There is some truth that you imply. Again, we will get to it, but okay. So the first thing you need to do to change is create a fresh start. So you're more likely to start a new habit. You're more likely to change, so to speak. I think we all know famously, oh, I'm going to start my workout on Monday. I'm going to start my workout on the first of the month. Oh, I'm going to start my workout on the first of the year, you know, New Year's resolution. You're actually more likely to make a, uh, to, to stick with the New Year's resolution than you are if you're going to start your workout on June 13th, let's say. I'm going to do the, the, the day I turn this age, the, the day I turn 30, I'm going to start this habit. Um... So yeah, making a fresh start is a great way to put our failures in the past. We have failures in the past. We kind of want to distance ourselves from those. So we want to create a fresh start. But what's the problem here? What are you ultimately trying to do? You're trying to minimize the importance of the failure. You're trying to start this habit, let's say, working out by completely disregarding the past 15, 20 attempts that you've tried to make to work out in the past. And you say, well, it's different now because I'm starting in a new year or I'm starting on my 25th birthday, what, you know, whatever it is for you. So what do you ultimately want to do here? You, you want to, to, to lessen the intensity of the failure. You want to lessen the intensity of your anxiety and your anger and perhaps your resentment around the failure. That's what you ultimately want to do. Yes, making a New Year's resolution, you're, 
and the numbers here, I'm going I'm to get through some of the numbers. You're like eight or nine percent more likely to stick to a New Year's resolution, stick to working out if you start on the 1st of January than if you start on the 13th of June, for example, unless maybe 13th of June is your birthday. But ultimately what you're trying to do is manage the failure, create some breathing room around the failure so it doesn't affect you so much, so you're not burdened by it. That's why it's difficult to create a new habit. That's why it's difficult to go to the gym. Because of the resentment you have towards yourself, towards your mother, towards your father, because they never took care of themselves. They never taught you how to work out properly. So not only do you need to go to the gym to work out, you need to overcome this resentment that you have towards your mom, who maybe she never taught you to work out properly. And and you could be right about that. She may have never taught you to work out properly. So in a way, your resentment is justified, but it is ultimately your resentment, even if your mom was the cause of it. So the real question here is not to create a fresh start, but how do you process resentment? How do you process emotional issues or, or become aware of why you failed in the past? Just another a different way of saying the same thing. Becoming aware of why you failed in the past. I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting upset just talking about this. I, I didn't realize uh, I was gonna be this upset. Uh, we'll see. It, but it, it's so silly. Yes, you would try to make a fresh start if you didn't know how to manage failure and resentments and anxiety, become aware of why you failed. But you're the the, the you're not technically a psychologist, psychologist, you're a behavioral scientist. But okay, behavioral scientists, you don't even ask the question where do behaviors come from? Why do we have a difficult time going to the gym in the first place? Which ultimately, I, w- I would say, feels good. You're not you're not going to really be happy uh, until until you you know you're working out properly. That's what you're built to do. So create a fresh start or manage your emotions on, uh, around why you failed in the past. But you don't know how to do that. So well, let's just create a fresh start. Let's just start this new habit or whatever you want to do on our birthday. Um, as soon as we move. Yeah, and she talks about the importance of moving. Yeah, it's, it's just so crazy. Um, well, I guess she doesn't say this explicitly, so I don't want to criticize her more than, than I really need to. But... You start a new habit when you move. I mean, you're not aware of how often people will move to change who they are and the pitfalls of that. Of course, the the great uh, quotation around that is wherever you go, there you are. So simply moving isn't going to help. If you're bringing your issues with you, if you're really not managing your issues at first, yes, it will work in the the moment. And of course, that's the, the huge hole in all these studies that she cites. It may improve more in the moment, but I know, I haven't looked through every study in this book. There's a bunch of pages of studies here, or notes. The problem with a lot of this research is, yes, you can change the behavior for the six months, but is it sustainable? And we'll get to other holes in the research. So that's the first one. Uh, Make a fresh start, which is great. I mean, that's a great tip, but that's not a replacement for, okay, let's really manage the issues why we have a difficult time starting in the first place. Why we have a difficult time doing this thing that we know we need to do. You're just trying to be rational in the face of the irrational. And that does work, of course. Rationality uber all is. But you have to understand the rationality of the supposedly irrational thing that you're doing. Okay, second tip that she uh, cites in this book. I mean, this book is just a glorified blog post. It did not need to be 200, 200, whatever pages that it is. But um, could have been a blog post, so there's seven points. I think I said that. 
So the second point is to make it fun. If you want to start a new task, make it fun, not important. Take the heaviness out of the task. We, you know, we think, oh, I'm going to you know, start this new thing. Um, uh, you know, I'm just going to use working out as the example, but insert whatever you have a difficult time with, whether it's meeting new people, talking to girls, being open to maybe men asking her out if you're a woman, you know, act, activity, you know, there's a bunch of things here. You know, doing your homework, doing work, working on a business idea, side hustle. We, we try to get ourselves to do it by making it important, making it important in our mind. Like, okay, if I don't stop smoking, then I'm going to die of lung cancer. And now, you know, I'm, I'm going to look at uh, pictures of, of diseased lungs online and, you know, really zero in on how important this is for me and think about my children and how it's going to affect them. This actually doesn't work. Trying to make it more important does not work. What does work more, and you know, this is a good tip and something to keep in mind, is to make it fun. So if you want to go to the gym, don't scare yourself into thinking, oh, if I don't lose weight, I'm going to die, da, 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 all this stuff. Think, I'm going to go to the gym and have fun. You are more likely to change a habit if that's what you're thinking. Yes, of course, I think you probably see a theme already, but what makes it more fun? You just convince yourself to have more fun doing it. I mean, that may help a little, but where does fun come from? Why do we have fun? Why, why does one person have fun in a certain situation while the other person doesn't? Again, because it's heavier, right? And, and why is it heavy? Because emotional issues, right? because of unprocessed emotional issues, which of course is only going to come through regulation, through tr creating some breathing room in that resentment. Um, like if you're starting to smoke, if, like if you smoke because your parents smoked or something, you may be blaming them. And so part of it is working through your resentment and it will naturally be more fun. I would even argue that fun is the natural state of humanity, but it gets beaten out. Of, it doesn't get beaten out of us. So to speak, we accumulate these emotional issues and then things naturally become less fun. Well, at that point, just convincing yourself to make something fun is not really going to work long term. It may feel good in the moment to say, oh, I'm going to make a game out of quitting smoking or going to the gym, but long-term, it's not going to be sustainable until you manage these emotional issues because ultimately where behaviors come from is emotions. It's just not thinking in fundamentals. I mean, that's going to be the theme here. I mean, I'm spoiling it for you. I'm going to say a few more things, but just the complete inability to think in fundamentals. In fact, using research using these cognitive research, this cognitive research that, I mean, again, I'm, she even cites some, I know, awful, awful research that hasn't been disproven, but she uses it in a context where it has no validity. Uh, it's just a failure to think in fundamentals. I mean, you know, what's interesting is I was thinking of that documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. It, it came out a few years ago. I think it may still be on Netflix. I, I definitely recommend everybody go watch that documentary. There is a guy, I mean, this is just, a, you know, the greatest sushi maker in Japan. All he cares about, he just you know, pours his whole life into uh, making the best sushi. But my takeaway from that documentary is, yeah, I mean, Jiro, you know, and, and his apprentices, the people who he has working for him, they prepare the sushi in a certain way, they garnish it, they, they have little techniques that they do to make the sushi taste better. But, but ultimately, I mean, it didn't really come across in the documentary fully, but I just got the impression that at least half, maybe three quarters of Jiro's time is 
not in any kind of preparation, not in any kind of technique. He doesn't really have a secret there so much, but he just spends so much time and energy in getting good fish, getting quality tuna. He has a great relationship with this tuna guy who scopes out a good fish for him from, from you know, where, where they get sushi. If you didn't know. Hmm. Uh, that's, that's the effort. You know, that's really where most of the effort goes into. Fundamentals. If we don't have a good fish, it doesn't matter what kind of technique or you know, what kind of rice preparation technique we have. It's not going to make up for the fact that the fish is no good. And just one of my favorite scenes in that documentary, his fish guy goes around the fish market one day and no tuna was good enough. No tuna was good enough. And he's like, well, we're just not going to buy anything. You know, that's the power. Thinking in fundamentals. And I think it's probably true of all the, the world's top chefs. It's not some technique. It's not, oh, they, they do this one thing and you just got to do this one thing and then, then the dish tastes better. It's, no, you look at most of them, I'm sure all of them, and they own farms. It's like, it's like they don't even trust to have a farm guy. No, I want to control the farm. I want to control everything. And in fact, if you look at it even more, not only do they own the farm, but they spent 20 years preparing the soil. Yeah, so much of what is in this book and, and what permeates so uh, much of psychology is, you know, trimming, uh, trimming the leaves, trimming the branches back. Oh, you have a difficult time going to the, the dentist. Well, here, just download this app that, that reminds you to, to make a dentist appointment every six months or every three months. It actually links up with your insurance and it tells you exactly when. It's like, no, that's not the point. Now, that may be nice. That may work, but you're just trimming back the branches. Let's look at the soil. Let's be like Jiro. Let's be like any great chef. I don't care about the preparation. I don't care about any of these miscellaneous ingredients. If it's a, let's say a steak, we need to look at the soil of the grass that the beef that the cows are eating. That's what matters. Look at the fundamentals. In therapy, psychology is this field that completely lacks fundamentals right now. Another uh, point that she brings up, the third one, is commitment devices. So you need to create some kind of commitment device to help you to start a new habit. So one example of a commitment device that she uh, discusses is this website. You may have heard of it, Stick. There's a few others like this. And essentially what it says is if you don't lose a certain amount of weight or if you don't quit smoking by a certain time, then you commit to a certain amount of money to be donated to some charity or, or preferably some charity that you would disagree with. So I think she uses the example of if you're pro-gun, then you would donate automatically $500 or whatever it is to an anti-gun organization. So now, well, you're more likely, you're more likely to do whatever it is you want to do. Start working out, stop smoking. If you make this kind of commitment device, what are, I mean, there's just two glaring philosophical errors in this that definitely bears out in the research. Of course, if, if you just look at one little aspect of the research, she's right. But if you take in the research as a context, uh, the, the research does not support this, that this really works. And what is it? You know, what's she missing here? Well, well, the first thing is you need to get to the place where you make the commitment in the first place. If you're willing to make that commitment, then you're more likely to change. And yet you're more likely to work. And, and these were the biggest numbers in the whole book. You're, you're 
like 25 to 33% more successful, you know, depending on the kind of commitment device you make. You're going to be 25 to 33% more successful to change the behavior when you make this kind of commitment. When you really put your money down, maybe even to a charity or some organization that you perhaps violently disagree with. But what makes you get to the place where you want to make a commitment in the first place? That's the goal. So yeah, get to the point where you're more likely to, where you make a commitment. But that, you know, most people, when they, when they see something like stick and, and they have a smoking problem, they're like, oh, that's lame. I'm not going to do that. Well, what's the difference between, between them and somebody who smokes and is like, okay, I'm willing to put up 15 grand to stop smoking. Awareness. They have more awareness of what they need to do to change. Um, you know, that's, that's the thing. You need emotional awareness. That's where this all comes from. Yes, if, you're more, if you make a commitment, a financially backed commitment, you're more likely to change, but that, that, that begs the question, literally. It's circular reasoning. Where does the commitment come from? How do you get people more likely to make the commitment? No answer. She gives no answer. Just if you make a commitment, you're more likely to change. Of course you are. Where does it come from though? No fundamental thinking. She's trimming back the branches. She needs to look at the soil. And again, I don't want to make this about her. Um, This is all, this is just indicative of the therapy industry, psychology industry as a whole. And the other thing wrong here, of course, is like, yeah, you can make the commitment to stop the unhealthy behavior, but so smoking, for instance, why do you smoke to manage stress? It's an unhealthy way to manage stress. You're not handling stress in the best way. And so part of your your release mechanism for that is to smoke. Smoking is a lot of fun. I love it. But what's the problem here? Yeah, you stop smoking, but maybe you you, uh, took up some other bad habit. You know, there, there's a million ways to manage uh, unhealthy stress, stress that you build up, stress that you don't really know how to manage, so you manage in an unhealthy way. There's a million ways to do it. Okay, you stopped smoking. Are you drinking more? Are you sleeping worse? Are, are you st- staying up and eating more? You know, are you, uh, are you beating your wife more? You know, what's going on? If you just look at the, like the one moment, the one perceptual moment, you go, wow, look, people are smoking less. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that you're really managing the issue. Why are you smoking in the first place? Just making a commitment device doesn't necessarily manage that emotional issue. I mean, sometimes it can't. You know, sometimes you change the behavior and and in the change in the behavior helps you manage the emotion. But I would say that's pretty rare and, and definitely not guaranteed. So yeah, commitment devices, sure. How do we get to commitment in the first place? Pain. Right? We need pain. That This is the, the point of therapy. Let's get as honest about your life. Let's get so honest about your life, you cannot help but escape the pain. Just put the, the existential dread that is your life, the tragedy, the perhaps tragedy that is your life face-to-face. We need to talk through it. Yeah, we need to get you face-to-face with that. In order to do that, we need to talk through certain emotional issues in specifically a certain way. Something else that therapy doesn't uh, doesn't cover not even a little bit okay so the next thing I'm gonna go through these a little uh, uh, faster here so the next thing is forgetfulness 
you know, sometimes when we don't change, we, we simply forget. I mean, the littleness of this, of this chapter is really staggering. It's just about recency bias and the importance of creating a plan, of course. But why? Yeah, if you create a plan to do something, you're more likely to do it. But again, with the previous point about commitment devices, what makes you create a plan in the first place? I mean, have you ever talked to anybody ever? Have you ever talked to yourself? Have you ever been honest about your own sense of irrationality? We know creating a plan works, but we'll still go months, years, struggling with something, not creating a plan. Why? Because in order to create a plan, that, that requires a certain level of, I would argue, emotional regulation. So yeah, if you create a plan, but what, how do you get yourself to create a plan in the first place? Awareness, perhaps pain. I mean, just work, talk with anybody. Talk with anybody who's having a difficult time. It's just amazing how you can tell somebody, okay, if you know you create a plan, this will help. They go, yeah, I know. Okay, so you're going to create a plan this week? Yeah, I'm totally going to create a plan this week. Then they come back and, oh, I didn't create a plan. Right, because it's painful to create a plan. Creating a plan is part of the regulation, and really that's like step seven or eight in emotional regulation. So, yeah, of course, just it boggles that she doesn't ask this question. I mean, it's like saying, how do you dunk a basketball? Well, you just get a 36-inch vertical. If you have a 36-inch vertical, then you dunk a basketball. If you have a good plan, then you're going to more likely to uh, to reach the school. Yeah, but how do you get a 36-inch vertical? You're not answering the question. You're not going back to the fundamentals. Trimming back the branches, not looking at the soil. And then laziness, I don't know. You know, I mean, this chapter is terrible. I mean, she talks about laziness, doesn't discuss what laziness is, where it comes from. She says it's a natural human tendency. I look at any seven-year-old, look at any, like I I think I talk about in uh, my shame little pamphlet ebook thing that you get when you sign up for my newsletter. I mean, look at any 12-year-old who's had a good upbringing. They are not lazy. The problem with an 11 or 12-year-old who's had a good upbringing is they do too much. They do too much. They're too scattered. You have to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. We can't do everything. You know, we can't go to, to, to 50 camps this summer. The natural state is, I don't, I would argue, is it really laziness? Now, it seems like the natural state because a lot of people are lazy, but is that really what's going on? You don't ask, ask the question why, right? You don't go from the perceptual to the conceptual. You don't ask the question why. We will get to it. So part of this, it, you know, just there's a helpful technique here is if you want to create a routine, create a flexible routine. Okay, that helps. But again, it doesn't manage the emotion and something that she does in, in this chapter, which is ridiculous. I mean, if, if you know, two things, if you read two sentences about psychology ever, is she cites Skinner experiments. Yes, Skinner had some interesting observations at the time and he was really a reaction to the irrationality of the psychodynamic movement. And there is a lot of rationality in there, even though I would consider myself techly if a, a part of that. There's a lot of problems with it. And Skinner was a great compensation for that, but he was only a compensation. And a lot of his animal studies, these are animal studies. They do not track the humans. And this has been shown more, you know, just tons of times. Behaviorism, just trying to change your behavior by, you know, rewarding good behavior, just reinforcement, right? Positive reinforcement for good behavior, negative reinforcement for bad behavior. It is does not work like that for humans. It simply does not work because it's not about the reward. It's not about the punishment. It's what the punishment means. This is why you can't just put a kid in timeout. Even a kid, 
not even conceptually. You can't just put a kid in timeout, right? That would probably maybe work for a dog. And even then it doesn't really work for a dog. That may work for a, a lower animal. You get them to stop doing the behaviors, negative reinforcement. But what does that punishment mean? That's what matters to humans. And the way that she just cites Skinner experiments, it's just like, wow, unbelievable. And then two more here, uh, confidence. You gotta have uh, some confidence. You have to have some belief in yourself, otherwise you're not gonna change. Yeah, great. Uh, where does confidence come from? What even is confidence? She says it comes from giving advice rather than receiving advice. Yeah, maybe, you know, that could help. I, I, it's just unbelievable to me. Oh, just change your belief and you change your belief by giving people advice? No, what is confidence? Define it. Go get my book, Man's Guide to Psychology. I define it, say exactly where it comes from. Yes, I do believe that confidence, you're gonna need confidence to change who you, uh, who you are. But you gotta develop it. And in order to develop it, you gotta do the work. And it's gonna be more work, well not work, just more effort, more directed effort, more fundamental directed effort than simply, oh, give people advice. I mean, how, how does that even work? I, I don't even wanna get there. That's just going long enough as it is. And then the final section is on conformity. This is in a sense, surround yourself with successful people and you're more likely to be successful. Of course, this really doesn't happen. And she cites this study uh, in the Air Force Academy. They took um, incoming freshmen who had, who were not as good as students, I think they used their verbal SAT score. They, they took incoming freshmen with low verbal SAT score, combined them with uh, freshmen who had a high verbal SAT score and they thought, well, look, the people with the high verbal SAT score are gonna help the people with the low verbal SAT score and bring all their grades up. But that didn't, is not what happened. The people with the high verbal SAT scores, they kind of just grouped off together. And the people with the low verbal SAT scores, they grouped off together. So it's not about being around people. So what is it about? Clearly implied in that study that didn't work out, that supposedly proved your point, but actually contradicts your point. It's not about being around certain kind of people. It's about having certain kind of relationships with those people. And I, like, how many relationships has this advice ruined? You've got to surround yourself with a certain kind of, kind of person. No toxic people in your life. Everybody has somebody, even the least toxic person in your life is still toxic to some degree. So it's really just a rationalization to disconnect from this person, to isolate. Because it has nothing to do with whether you hang around them or how often you hang around them. And it has everything to do with your relationship with them. And of course, it's not fundamental. You, you know, the reason why you're like the people who you hang out with isn't because you're hanging out with them, it's because you're already like them, so you're more likely to hang out, as indicated by this Air Force incoming freshman, you know, combined low SAT score, low verbal SAT with high verbal SAT. And also she says, well, you gotta ask for help. Yes, you gotta ask for help. You gotta create a plan. You gotta be committed. How do you get to the place where you're willing to be com committed, where you're willing to create a plan, where, where you're willing to ask for help? You gotta manage emotions. If you don't talk about that, then you're simply talking about the what, not the how. This is not psychology. This is, or the, this is enough uh, psychology. Yeah, this is, is, uh, uh, this is ethics. You're just telling us what to do. I mean, how to, how to determine whether some academic has their head up their butt. They've spent too much time in academia just lecturing to people and not really talking to people and hearing where they're coming from. Because they focus on the what, not the how. And this is what happens here. But of course, what, how do you really change? Well, 
Uh, Miss Milkman, Dr. Milkman here gives the answer, not in the book proper, but in the acknowledgments. So these techniques work for her in a sense. These techniques work for her and all of her buddies, Angela Duckworth being one of them of grit fame, of growth mindset fame. And of course, all the research on that is subpar. So it's kind of a red flag that Angela Duckworth writes the forward to your book. But how do you really change? What is fundamental? What is the soil? How do you get yourself to the place where you're willing to make a commitment, where you're, you're willing to create a plan, where you're willing to ask somebody for help? How do you get to the place of awareness? Well, she says it here in the acknowledgments. I almost didn't read it, but I'm glad I did. She glosses over it, right? Where does it come from? Her relationships. This lady has really healthy relationships. She thanks her parents, who she says were always loving and supportive. Now, I'm sure they weren't always loving and supportive. I'm sure there were difficulties there. Well, that's the good stuff, Katie. How did... How did you have managed to have problems with your mom and dad growing up, yet you clearly resolved them? You resolved them enough to, to be glowing about them and praise them in your book, in the acknowledgments of your book. That's the good stuff. She thanks her husband, who they've been, I think they've been together for a while. She talks about how they were dating, you know, back in graduate school. So she has this long-term connection, supposedly good. Maybe it's not. Maybe she's just saying that in the acknowledgments. But I would argue if she's able to incorporate these things and, and change, like if she can just convince herself to have fun with a behavior, with, with incorporating a new habit that she, to, that she doesn't really want to incorporate, then she's probably well-regulated. She probably has a decent relationship, a decent enough relationship with her husband. Okay, how do you do that? What this book needs to be about is how is your biggest fight, the biggest fight with your husband and how you work through it. That's how to change. Tell us what you went through. Not tell us, don't tell us about how to go on stick and create a commitment advice. Yeah, you know, we've all tried that. We've all lost thousands of dollars trying that. That's why we go to therapy. That's why we pick up a book, how to change, how to go from who you are to who you want to be. Yeah, I want to be the guy who when I make a commitment device on stick, and I put up all the money in my checking account, let's say, I, I do actually stick with it. That's who I wanna be. Tell me about a fight with your dad. Tell me about the most difficult time you had with your mom when you were 13 to 15. How did you work through it? You know, tell us, give us a recording of Thanksgiving dinner. That's the soil. But that's confusing, right? Right. That's not definitive. That's not a, quote, science. That's a philosophy. That requires us looking at emotions from a philosophical perspective, from a first principles, Jiro Dreams of Sushi kind of perspective. And that is the, like the huge blank spot, a huge blank spot in psychotherapy. And it's worse than you think. You think I come on here and play it up to be worse than it is? No, it's actually worse than I play it up. Like the tinkle like the critical race theory stuff. Maybe it doesn't seem as bad at first, but when you're submersed in this culture, you go, oh my God, there's just this huge blind spot here. Nobody talks about. And this book, I mean, look, she is, you know, Ivy League trained. I think she went to Yale or got her PhD from Princeton or, I know she wouldn't have got her PhD in a science from Princeton. Princeton doesn't do that. I think she, she must have had her undergrad from Princeton. I think she got her PhD from Yale. I mean, this is the cream of the crop. Yeah, she te teaches at Warden, Ivy League, cream of the crop, the academic to, of all academics. 
And this is what we get. She talks about her advisors throughout this book and, and in her acknowledgments. I mean, the, the kind of relationship she has with her advisor. I mean, talk about open. Talk about being able to be uh, open and emotionally honest. That's what people want. And it sounds like a great relationship and it sounds like he was really supportive. How do we cultivate that? Do we just need to find a good advisor? Well, okay, that, that could take a lifetime. Maybe you got lucky. And I'm not criticizing. I'm not saying like you're lucky and, and you know you shouldn't be talking about this. No, that's great. I'm really happy for you. They had this relationship. But we can't rely on other people to have a good relationship. That is fundamentally defeatist. That, that puts the uh, locus of control externally. How do we create the best possible relationships with the people who are around us now, even if they happen to be toxic? No answer. Yeah, so this, um, this book feels uh, just defeatist. I mean, my, my takeaway was defeatism, even though she offered all these solutions, all these great concrete solutions. This is how you change, this is what you do. You know, do all these different specific things. Let's be as specific as possible, yet it feels defeatist. Well, why? I mean, it's the same reason why when somebody says, oh, you know, you don't start a business because 10% of businesses fail in, in the first six months or two years, whatever it is. 10% of businesses fail, so you're probably not going to, you're going to start a business, sure. You can go and create an LLC, but you're probably not going to make any money. So just don't even try. You know, as an excuse to not even try to start a business. Or, you know, also famously, 50% of marriages end in divorce. So why get married? Would you jump out of an airplane if there's a 50% chance the, the parachute uh, wouldn't open? No, but I would really understand how to pack the parachute correctly. Okay, so 50% of marriages end in divorce. What are the 50 other 50% of marriages doing? What, what do the 10% of businesses do? Well, how about I just take what they do and iterate that process? Then it's a 100% chance. There's something that all successful businesses do, all successful marriages do, whether it's groundwork, you know, soil work before actually getting in the relationship or, or afterwards. How do I take what they do? And I'm not going to guarantee my success in the short term, but in the long term, if I just take this process and iterate it, then I do, in a sense, guarantee my success. And this feels defeatist for the same reason. And this indicates the disintegration of the field of psychology now, because she starts off with this very simple question, how do you change? How do you go from who you are to who you want to be? And what does she do? It's a disintegration. Go read Leonard Peikoff's Dim Hypothesis. It's a disintegration of the field. It just, you know, spider webs out into all these different things. You know, just tons of, of ideas, tons of things to do. And there's no central thesis here. There's no fundamental, look, just work on maybe this one thing or these three things. I know with a successful business, they, they work on, they have one thing that they do and they do it really well. Now, it takes a while to incorporate that. Same thing with success, successful marriages. I mean, there's just certain things that they do well. It's going to take work. But if you iterate that process, then you are guaranteed success eventually. I mean, maybe it'll take until, until your third mar marriage. You know, we have different levels of uh, different kinds of temperament, uh, different kinds of trauma, you know, neurosis. I think that's the only one of the big five personality traits that actually exists, uh, that actually may be part of who you are. It's still changeable. You know, different levels of neurosis, neither good nor bad. So it takes people different amounts of time. But it's all the same iterative process.
process. And it, you know, it just ignores, yeah, it ignores the soil and it ignores the substratum. And it feels defeatist. It just feels like a lot. And you're not going to change if it feels like a lot. You're going to change when you can work on the fundamental thing, know what the fundamental thing is, and then work on it over and over in different ways, but in a sense, in a sense the same process. And that's what we can help you with here at Animus. You know, we do free consultations, animusempire.com slash schedule. We have a way of specifically talking through emotions, what emotions to talk about, how specifically to talk about them, what is the outcome of talking through our emotions, and then how do we manage that outcome? It's the same for everybody, because we're all humans. may not understand your experience exactly, but I have a pretty good idea what it is. You know, your story is my story. We're all dealing with the same thing. We all came here for the same reason, you know, because we came face to face with the irrational. Now, what we experienced as the irrational may be different for each of us, but how are we going to manage it? Is it going to be fundamentally the same? And that doesn't make any sense. Somebody like Katie Milkman and the rest of the psychotherapy field or cognitive science field, behavioral science, because they're stu- stuck in the perceptual level. We got to go to the conceptual. We got to go to the soil. We got to be like Jiro. If just get the best fish. Everything else will pretty much take care of itself. All right, guys. Well, I hope this is helpful to some degree. Again, you have my email. You have uh, the URL for the consultations. And I'll leave it there. And I will wish you all the pain and joy that comes from doing what you really need to do to change.